Hello, and welcome to the Heart of Equity podcast from the Heartland chapter of the National Association of Health Services Executives, also known as NASI. I'm your host, Pleasant Bradford Jr. I am a health equity professional, a healthcare leader, and a member of the NASI Heartland chapter. In the final episode of this season, we're talking with Kadisha Thomas-Smith, CEO of Care Content. Care Content is a content-focused digital marketing agency for the healthcare industry. They also partner with NASI to produce this podcast. We're discussing this season of Heart of Equity, including our favorite episodes and guest highlights. We're also talking about the state of health equity today. Since this podcast began in May 2022, health equity has progressed in some ways and become worse in others. We're taking a look at where we are now and what's to come. Now, let's get into our discussion with Kadisha. Welcome to the Heart of Equity podcast, Kadisha. How are you today? I am good. How are you? I am doing well. You really need no formal introduction because your company, Care Content, is the company that produces this podcast. So we're super excited to get into this discussion and highlight some of our our favorite episodes that we really loved and things that we've learned along the way during this journey in our inaugural season. Awesome. I mean, I have to thank the amazing team that works for Care Content. They really do all of the legwork that makes these episodes run so smoothly. Like the reason we can get on and just start recording is because they've done all the background research. They have looked at the bios for the guests. They pull together the episode outline. So I really have to toss all of the praise and applause to them. And me too. They have been a pleasure to work with and they are the the ones that are making this possible. Well, let's dive right in. This is going to be a discussion on things that we loved about the podcast. The first thing I want to do is just celebrate the fact that we have produced, this is our 24th episode, which is remarkable. I was thinking about that last night. I was like, 24 episodes, that's that's remarkable. And we've had a number of speakers from the region, the Midwest region, even across the nation, talking about so many things, police brutality, entrepreneurship, social work, grant making, Black maternal health, recruiting and retention, and so much more. For those who don't know the origin story, I wanted to ask you to talk about the genesis of this podcast. How did it start? Why did you decide that you wanted to take this project on? And what is the role that your company play in producing this podcast? I'm a big fan of using content to reach people. And when the Nasi Heartland chapter was just getting started, it was very clear that you needed to reach people. You wanted to increase membership. You wanted to raise awareness about the chapter starting. And so I thought a podcast just lent itself very well to that goal of wanting to increase membership, let other healthcare professionals know um, that this organization was starting. In an area where I don't know how else you connect with people, where there's you know very disparate landscapes, and how often do you get together to have meetings and things like that? So I thought a podcast would be a good connection point. We went into it with the goal of we want to help you build your membership, and I think we were able to do that. 
we have exceeded our goals, which is which is great. Well, health equity is the heart of this podcast, and the definition that we've adopted is the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation definition, which is everyone has a fair opportunity to reach their highest level of success um, as it relates to health. How has health equity or the lack of health equity played a role in your professional and personal ambitions? I think personally, I became familiar with it just through my own family health history. Like many Black Americans, there are no old men in my family. Like many Black Americans, I've lost grandmothers and aunts in their 50s and 60s due to what we now know are preventable issues. But looking at the environments they came from, even if they were extremely on point with diet and exercise, there are certain other factors that would have played a role in causing their death prematurely. Um, I studied public health at Tufts University School of Medicine um, in graduate school and because I really wanted to learn about what are some of the other factors that have a bearing on whether or not we are healthy or not. And so personally, it's always been an interest of mine. And then professionally, you know, I can't, I never wanted to go to med school because I don't like blood. I never wanted to be a politician or a legislator because, you know, I just think that's a, that's, this is not me. <laughs> um, I probably get myself in trouble. <laughs> um, but communications has always been an area where I was very interested. So knowing how to just share information with people. Uh, we're working on a project now with a cancer center where we're pulling together a data dashboard where if you are a patient in a certain area, you can see how many other people have your type of cancer to see, is this an environmental thing or is this a personal thing? And I love working on, on projects that empower people with information that help them make decisions, not just about their own individual lives, but about the communities and the, the factors happening around them. Absolutely. I, too, have a, a similar interest in health equity due to my personal background as well. I Diabetes, for example, is a chronic condition that has burdened my family for multiple generations. And and that's just one of many chronic conditions. And then when you add on access to care and treatment and cost of care, they become barriers to actually maximizing your health potential, being able to live your healthiest life. And so for me, it was always important to find ways to remove those barriers to improve health, especially in the Black community. And then on a professional level, trying to tie that into the work and not just focus on the individual because the individual does not live in a vacuum, but understanding where that individual lives has an impact on their health. And so how do we make sure that the community in which this person lives is also helping that person seek the care that they need? You and I know each other from years and years ago because we did the Peace Corps together in the same country, right? We we yeah. you know, we went to Nicaragua and we lived there. And I mean, that definitely showed how much yeah. your environment can have a bearing on your health outcomes. I mean, my community was very different from yours because you had water and like literally yeah. made all the difference. I think I don't know how many bouts of parasites I had. It got to the point where I wasn't even treating them anymore because I was just like, you know what, we just gonna live together. <laughs> You can do your part, right? There is always agency. There is always a, a part that the individual can play. But there are plenty of other factors that can 
serve as like a, a counterpoint almost, or, yeah. or that can really just, you know, counteract with what you're doing individually. Yeah. One of our favorite highlights, you and I, when we were talking about this episode, the first one came to mind, which was with Ron Wyatt. Mm -hmm. And that was episodes three and four, for those who want to go back and listen. Ron Wyatt is the Vice President and Patient Safety Officer at MCIC Vermont LLC. And as he was talking, he recalled a question on an exam during his pre-med time at the University of Alabama. The question was, what reproduces the fastest? And the answers were rabbits, rodents, Negroes, and plankton. He protested that question through the Dean of Students at the University of Alabama, and it eventually reached the Washington Post. The professor responded when he had addressed this to him that he was talking about the reason why he did not capitalize Negroes was because he thought that Negroes are a lower form of life because they are not a biological community. Obviously, this experience had a huge impact on his career as he went to medical school and, and pursued other career opportunities. What is your reaction to this story and how does it reflect the state of health equity today? I have such respect for the generations that have gone before us who dealt with this type of stuff, dealt with this type of abuse, so that, you know, hopefully we wouldn't have to as much. We still do. I had just read Medical Apartheid, again, by Harriet Washington, which is another book that will give you complete PTSD, about just the abuse that African-Americans have had to deal with in the medical industry. And one of the things I've realized as, as I've gone on this rabbit hole of, of health equity, particularly race-based health equity, is that when you think it's bad, just keep reading. It gets worse. Yeah. When you think the abuse was horrible, just keep reading. It gets even more horrendous. There was literally no limit. And for him to have to, you know, prove himself in medical school by answering a question that inherently degrades him is part of the trauma that we end up having to deal with. It was very heartbreaking to hear that. And, and to have him have still such a spirit of just excellence and still have such a spirit of wanting to, you know, improve the environment that, that he's coming from was still very inspiring. It makes me know, number one, we really can't complain because yeah. we, we aren't dealing with it at that level. It gives me a tremendous amount of respect for the people who came before us and who had to deal with very overt, aggressive racism. But I think what it says about the state of health, health equity today, and I'm all, I mean, I'm a Christian, you know that I'm going to bring mm -hmm. this in. A good tree bears good fruit and a yeah. bad tree bears bad fruit. Yeah. So when I hear stories about Dr. Wyatt and when I read about the basis of medical abuse disguised as research in Harriet Washington's book, our healthcare system is a bad tree. You can't change whether or not a tree turns from good to bad. You really just have to cut the tree down. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I think there's plenty of people smarter than me who can figure that out. But uh, trying to tweak a bad tree to make it prettier or better is not an option. We really just have to look at what does our healthcare landscape need to look like and be willing to put anything on the table. If it means that there are certain places where Black Americans do not seek healthcare, then we might need to do that. Yeah. It means that we have very strict standards for who gets to offer us medical treatment. We might get accused of being discriminatory, but 
if it improves health outcomes, then that's what we need to do. You couldn't have said it any better. Absolutely agree. Another one of our episodes that we loved is the one with Joel Allen, and that's episode 18. Joel Allen is the SVP of client services for KP companies and the founder and CEO of Interaction Traction. And she was talking about debunking the myth that it's difficult to find high caliber black talent. And she mentioned in her home state of Minnesota, there are roughly 400,000 black people, 350,000 Latinos, 300,000 Asians, and 80,000 Native Americans. And she says, with well over a million folks to choose from, the likelihood of you not being able to find one qualified person of color for one job is statistically improbable. What's your reaction to that response? And how can this knowledge help provide opportunities for more well-qualified people of color to step into these roles? I have a very different perspective on this. I don't think people of color should step into these roles. I think that we have seen enough of having the one or two black people in a high profile position in a company. And there are too many instances of this being, you know, toxic work environment, dealing with racial aggression, dealing with microaggressions. And at some point, I think that black folks who are smart enough to navigate these types of environments need to also understand they're smart enough to start their own companies. Yeah. I was listening to a YouTube video yesterday where a young lady was encouraging black women to stop getting all these degrees and credentials and certificates and going back for your second and third master's degree and two master's degrees and PhDs because you think having the alphabet behind your name will somehow make them value you and will somehow give you this, the position and the respect that you deserve. And I think what we're learning is when a person has decided that you are lower than or a system has decided that you are lower than, you can go and get all the credentials you want. You will still have to fight for the right pay, the right position, the right voice, the right authority. And I think at some point, Black people need to wake up and realize that we can keep water sliding in this trap if we want to, or we can get our entrepreneurial spines back and start building companies that serve these entities where we can create the environments where we're actually valued and where we can control the rewards we get for our work and, and the compensation that we get. So at this point, if you are a super smart, highly educated Black professional and you are tolerating a toxic work environment, um, you are tolerating microaggressions, my question to you is why have you not stepped out and become a consultant? Why have you not stepped out and started your own company? Snap, 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 snap. <laughs> <laughs> And we do see that in the statistics in that Black women are the largest group of people that are starting their own businesses. And to your point, they're listening to you and to so many others when they say, hey, we know what we can offer and we're going to offer that ourselves. Yeah, agreed. And I think there's a million different ways that you can tap into a market and offer your expertise as a service or as a product. It yeah. takes brainstorming and it takes a bit of a leap of faith. And I often hear that, oh, entrepreneurship isn't for everybody. Well, having a job in a toxic work environment isn't for anybody, right? So, so why has that become our default go-to where we're willing to tolerate that, but we're not willing to bet on ourselves and say, could I build a small company of five people, 10 people? 
where I could create the type of work environment I want. I mean, for me, getting a job would be terrifying right now. It would be, it would literally terrify me if I had to not do my company and go work in, in some of these places. That's true. That's true. Another one of our favorite episodes is with John Bluford. And for those who want to listen to that episode is episode 15. He is the president and founder of the Bluford Healthcare Leadership Institute. And he talks about improving health equity, starting with children, which is something different. We usually talk about it from an adult perspective, but not necessarily from a a child's perspective. He emphasizes helping children understand the cost of health inequities, the loss and productivity of people who are suffering, and the wealth that's being lost in our community and our families is critical. It's absolutely critical. What are the benefits of addressing health inequities through the next generation? And are there any downsides or drawbacks to that? Absolutely not. And honestly, with all of the achievement gap issues in, you know, with especially urban education, I would love to see more curricula focus on solving real real world problems. Right. Like as young children are learning algebra and they're solving for X, let's make it a real problem that they have to deal with. Let's make the word problems and the essays and and the assignments about things they're going to encounter and we'll have to start thinking about. You know, I have two children. You know that Uh, they're about to be seven and nine this year. And when I look at some of the work that they get, I'm just like, this is busy work. Mm -hmm. If we're going to learn math, let's make it something where it's actually useful. Let's make it something where, you know, we're solving a problem that you might encounter and at least you'll be you'll have built that muscle to think through it. I personally love working with middle schoolers. Um, I love working with youth groups. And it's amazing some of the ideas they come up with when they get the microphone and are able to try to problem solve. I was blown away by John Bluford. And him saying, start getting kids in middle school thinking about health equity issues, thinking about housing issues, because they're going to be the ones to have to step up and solve it. But unfortunately, in our culture, we think a person isn't qualified until they're 40 or sometimes even 60. Now you can step into the world of problem solve. But it's like, no, let's let's see what the 18 year old might come up with. I mean, especially if it's his generation we're trying to reach. Absolutely. I have a two year old son and. He's in a Montessori program, and I love the fact that he's able to talk about real-life situations. For example, the school invited Nakima Pounds, who's a huge social activist in the Twin Cities area, and she recently wrote a book, and they invited her to talk about social activism. And so it made me think of this episode with John Bluford when he's talking about let's talk to children because they understand this. They live this. They see the impact on our lives. And they're just trying to figure out what can I do to help? And we need to provide that space for them to show up and solve many of these problems that we're facing today. Yep. One of the most critical ways you can help promote health equity is to make sure your health system is doing business with Black-owned companies. This creates career opportunities, builds generational wealth, and allows us to control our own resources. For our Buy Black Vendor Spotlight, we'd like to highlight Breaking Bread. 
Breaking Bread is a restaurant in Minneapolis that is a part of Appetite for Change, a nonprofit that generates health, wealth, and social change. For more information, please go to breakingbreadfoods.com. Now, let's get back to our discussion. Janice Jurgen, we had an amazing conversation with her, and that's episode 21. Jan is the Vice President of Network Development at Children's Hospital and Medical Center in, in Omaha, Nebraska, and she talked about the importance of vendor diversity. She was talking about how it has a big impact on not only your employees and their perception of how sincere you are, but it also improves the overall environment in the community when you do invest in small businesses in the community, especially communities of color. How important is vendor diversity to a company's success and how much of an impact can choosing the diverse vendors have on your health equity strategy? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I'm heavily biased on this one. (laughs) I am a vendor and I'm a black woman. So I think that health systems in particular should be extremely inviting to diverse vendors. Um, I would even go as far as to say this. If you're a health system and this is not your focus, I question if you care about health equity at all. Yeah. If you're a health system and you're not making sure that you're doing business with companies that are owned by Black Americans, Black women, Black men, Latinos, Asians, if you're not making sure that the companies you do business with are not all owned by white people, I question if you really give a crap about health equity. Yeah. This country, you only build wealth in one way. You have to own something. Yeah. Nobody builds wealth through a paycheck. If you want to see wealth gaps closed, which will inevitably close other gaps like health equity, then you will have to start doing business with vendors who look like the community you want to help. If you want to put a bunch of brown skin, see sweet people, that's fine. That's helpful. If you want to make sure you have a diverse staff, that's fine. That's helpful. But that's not building wealth. It's not helping to close wealth gaps. So for me, for example, and I do have to give this disclaimer, Jan Jurgen is one of our clients. Children's Hospital is one of our clients. We manage their website. They were actually one of my early clients. And I was very surprised that they were interested in working with us because we were much smaller. Um, but we had ideas that they liked and they wanted to move forward with and they took a chance on us. And that was, you know, years ago. Fast forward, now I have, you know, we have 10 employees. Um, I have a particular heart for hiring uh, people who have special needs and women who have children. They need a certain type of work environment. And when you hire diverse vendors, they tend to have an eye for that. They tend to say, you know what, I want to create a more inclusive work environment. And when you're a hospital who is adding to that company's revenue by doing business with them, You're also adding to how they look at the workforce and and the people they're bringing into the workforce that you might not really think about. So if I could rank all of the ways that we could pursue health equity goals, this would be at the top of the list and everything else would be a distant second. I would love to see more hospitals. I live in Chicago. I would love to see more hospitals doing business with these young men who are starting snowplow businesses, with these young men who are doing landscape businesses. Uh, food trucks. I would love to see more hospitals and health systems 
um, working with young African-American men and women who are trying to get their, their transportation contract going. Like that is how you truly change the trajectory of a community. And again, I'll say it again, if, if this is not a focus, I question if this hospital actually cares about health equity. Yeah, and there's a recent article that mentioned there are lawsuits that have been filed against companies who stated, yes, we are committed to diversity, equity, inclusion as of, say, May of 2020, and today is actually the anniversary of the murder of George Floyd in in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I live. Mm. And they're saying, it's been three years, and you have not done anything to change that, and we need to change that. And so I absolutely agree. It's so critical to invest in our businesses to address the wealth gap, which is something we are very, very intentional about on the podcast because there's a buy black vendor spotlight. That's we right. want to make sure that we are connecting to our, our local black businesses so that our audience has an opportunity to invest and we can invest in ourselves and, and grow generational wealth within our community. And yeah, I mean, this is there's a huge justice angle to that because think about it, a hospital or health system takes up a huge footprint in its community. Um, it likely is causing a ton of pollution in that community. We already have talked about, you know, in, in, in various conferences and various meetings, this is a constant conversation about how much living near a hospital can actually harm your health. Academic medical centers tend to be in very diverse communities, but then to give the contract to the person who's going to drive back out to the white suburb. No, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, I have to call out an, an interview I recently had with Dr. Omar Latif of Rush University Medical Center, who was like, you know, we can talk about health equity all we want, but if we're not helping these the communities that are most at risk for health disparities to actually generate wealth, the type that helps you pay for your health care, then we're just making, we're just blowing smoke. Yeah. And, and Nicole Hannah-Jones in the 1619 Project, one of the solutions she offers to addressing the, these health disparities is the creation of wealth. Yep. Spot on. One episode that is near and dear to my heart is the one that I hosted with my wife, Tony Newborn Rafford, who is the Director of Human Resources and the Chief Equity Officer at the City of St. Paul. And in our discussion, we talked about how we are really intentional about investing in Black-owned businesses, going to Black healthcare providers going to the black supermarket. Wherever there's an opportunity for us to invest in our community, we're very intentional about that. Why might this approach for you be beneficial for the health of black families and the black community in general? Well, I think when it comes to black healthcare providers, we know that when there's racial parity, there's better outcomes. So that alone makes that the best option, right? Like if I go, if my physicians are black and they're able to take a better history because the conversation is more authentic. They understand cultural cues that, you know, maybe a physician who doesn't have my same cultural background might miss. I'll give you a classic example of this. And this is not related to being African-American, but it was definitely like cultural cues. So my son, when he was born about three weeks, um, had a horrific outbreak all over his body. When we took him to the emergency room, they immediately admitted him they had all these clinicians come in to look at him. 
you know, that I finally gave them the green light to give him some kind of antibiotic to see if that would work, even though we had no diagnosis. I'm not typically a fan of that. But I could tell that, you know, he's three weeks old. He's this little butterball and he's just like crying and scratching and trying to, you know, claw through his skin because it's so irritating. And it was clear that no matter how many teams of residents and physicians they brought in, they were not able to figure out what was wrong. And I wasn't about to let them experiment on my son, bombarding him with medications just to see if this works. No, figure out what the problem is and then we'll find what works. They couldn't do that. And so I said, you know what? I need to go to a physician who, or a dermatologist who's familiar with brown skin. So I ended up going to another practice. She was a dermatologist and she was from Pakistan, right? She and I are the same color. She took one look at him and she said, he's allergic to dairy. He's allergic to milk. Wow. That's what the outbreak is. I mean, one look at him. She did not run a test. She did not experiment with medications. She looked at him and said, he's allergic to dairy. You need to stop breastfeeding. You need to switch to this type of formula that doesn't have this key ingredient. And here's a coupon because this mess is expensive. And again, her just having the context added to her competence. Yeah. I could have saved my son several days in the hospital. I could have saved that bill. I mean, think about like every, all of the dominoes that fell as a result of this team of very educated people not even having the cultural context to know what was wrong with my son. Yeah. There's a couple of, I guess, faults there. Number one, medical education, especially dermatology, doesn't tend to focus on brown skin. So you have a lot of blind spots. And even so, it just it just took me saying, we are discharging my son right now because you all don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And we see that time and time again, the data confirms it, that when there's parity in cultural context or in race or in ethnicity, outcomes are better. So I completely support you and Tony with your policy. My family has the same policy. And and I think, again, we have plenty of research to back up that this is the best way to get the best outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Another powerhouse episode was with... Olivia Jefferson, and she was on episode 14. She is the vice president of social responsibility and the head of United Healthcare's Children's Foundation based here in Minnesota. At the very end of that conversation, she quoted the incomparable Stacey Abrams, who said, my being a Black woman is not a deficit. It's a strength because I could not be where I am had I not overcome so many other barriers, which means you know I'm relentless, you know I'm persistent, and you know I'm smart. How does this sentiment apply to our conversations around health equity? So I'm going to go in a different direction here. (laughs) That's totally fine. Politics are very different from the state (laughs) ones. To be honest, I feel like this could be a double-edged sword. I feel like This stereotype of Black women being so strong and relentless, we need to take it out back and stab it. And we need to stop forcing Black women to have to deal with so much to be accepted or to be considered successful. Now, I'm not sure if that's exactly what Stacey Abrams meant, but I I want Black women to have the ability to cry at work and still be taken seriously the way white women do. Yeah. I want Black women to be able to take a complete sick day And not have a pile of work jammed on their desks when they come back because somehow being sick puts you behind. Yeah. You know, I want us to be able to be human and be vulnerable and be soft 
and still be taken seriously. I want us to stop being the mules of every industry we're in. And I want us to know when we need to relent. (laughs) The chronic disease issues that we see with black women that are all stress-based, right? Not all stress-based, but quite a few of them are stress-based. I would like to see that completely go away because we're able to say, you know what? I need help or I'm not taking this on or, you know, I'm pushing back or I'm taking all my vacation days. If you work for a company that tells you how many days you can be sick, you are sick every one of those days. You know, yesterday I had to take a day off and I had to actually coach myself to stay in the bed. It's like, I have a sore throat. That's a legit reason for me to stay in the bed. I don't have any pertinent meetings. And if I did, I would cancel them. Yeah. And we need to just get to that point where we can be human and still be considered successful. We talk about that in another episode, episode 17 with Alexis Yeboa, program manager at Best Buy Health, dismantling the strong Black woman archetype. That was a really insightful conversation. And a lot of the things you just mentioned were also mentioned in that in that conversation as well. Mm-hmm. Well, to conclude... Given where we are, when we first started the podcast last year, around May until now, which is about a year, what is the state of health equity now? Do you see the country as having progressed, staying stagnant, or have we regressed? And then the last question, how can aspiring Black healthcare executives take all of this, where we are today, into account into their jobs? Yeah. There are certain aspects of our society that work well being integrated. And then there are certain aspects of our society where we need to put our own oxygen mask on first. And this is one of those issues. We tried to do the integration thing when it comes to health care and, and seeking health services. We're literally dying still at higher rates as a result of it. And I think we need to take a very strong, unapologetic inward focus to fix the foundational things that before you can even get to health equity have to be fixed, like our terrible family structures, like our achievement gap in education, like like the wealth gap, like our entrepreneurship. I think we need to build those up and take the same approach to health equity where we are fixing ourselves and not reaching out and locking arms with other people to fix us. I was thinking about this answer as well, and I think we've regressed mm. since the start of this podcast. There were some sobering statistics that that come to mind. Just recently, I I learned that the life expectancy for Black people dropped to its lowest level since 2000. And at 2000, it was 70 years. That was our life expectancy. It's dropped about five years. And of course, it's higher for Black women than it is for, for Black men. I think Black men was about 70, 73, and for Black women is about 75. There was another study that was published on the the Journal of the American Medical Association last month where researchers concluded that the gap in health outcomes, the black and white disparity gap, translated into 80 million years of potential life lost. Wow. Years of life that could have been preserved if the gap between the black and white mortality rates had been eliminated. And so Think of all those amazing ideas, all those leaders, all of those great opportunities for us to advance as a country. They're all gone. They're absolutely lost. And when you think about it, 
you think about how the U.S. is distinct and how it spends its money, not how much it spends. And so we spend a lot of money, but how we spend it is totally different. And so what I love about the podcast is that it is very focused on Black health. We're reaching out to Black healthcare professionals to understand what are you doing to advance health equity? We're highlighting those buy Black vendor spotlights so that we are the ones that are owning our health. We're the ones that are leading the charge. That's what I absolutely love. And I love that we're unapologetic about it. And so we have not gotten better. We've actually gotten worse. That means we have even more work to do um, to get where we need to go. But podcasts like this are inspirational for me because it serves as a constant reminder that through our ingenuity, through our resilience, we're able to achieve a lot. Agreed. I think to add to your point, we did a Black History Month video for Sinai Chicago, and one of the data points we included in there was about Booker T. Washington. He was one of the first advocates for Black medical experts to focus on public health and disease prevention in Black communities. In 1914, the life expectancy for African-Americans was 35 years, 35 years. Scientists, physicians, and nurses at Tuskegee launched a public health campaign that included in-home education for poor tenant farmers, consults with midwives, a mobile health clinic, conferences, national observances like National Health Improvement Week, and a well-oiled machine of Black press to spread the word about what we're supposed to be doing you know, for certain public health initiatives. And it worked in less than 30 years, the life expectancy of Black Americans increased to 57.5 years old for men and 63 for women. Wow. They did that in 30 years with very little resources. We haven't done anything like that since, except spend more money. So again, I think this shows that you can get a bunch of us in a room and get some good ideas flowing and get a commitment to follow through and execute. And I think you'll see a lot more progress. A great way to end our final episode of this season. Kadisha Thomas-Smith, CEO of Care Content. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for believing in this work, for you and your team and producing this work and, and helping us get this important message out to our listeners. Thanks. We look forward to season two, which should be starting up in September. So thank you, Pleasant, for being such an awesome host and leading these discussions. I appreciate it. I can't wait to continue in season two. Thank you. If you're a healthcare executive in Minnesota, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Iowa, Kansas, or Missouri who cares about health equity for people of color, please consider joining the National Association of Health Services Executives Heartland Chapter at nasiheartland.org. That is N-A-H-S-E heartland.org. For more episodes of the Heart of Equity podcast, subscribe at Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcatcher. And while you're there, please leave us a comment. Thank you for listening.